Hey, hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thanks for tuning in. Really, really good episode for you today. I'm excited for you to hear it. It's a conversation with both Craig Hewitt, founder of Podcast Motor, and Russ Perry, founder of Design Pickle, and myself and the three of us all running productized service businesses of various shapes and sizes and phases of growth. We all kind of compare notes and ask each other questions, pick each other's brain and just share our experiences. And so much of it is, you know, we, we share a lot of the experiences and we also come with different perspectives on a whole bunch of different stuff from why we started the service business in the first place, the backstory on that, what were our first kind of growing pains and first, you know, being able to remove ourselves. And then what does it look like today into, you know, growing sometimes massive teams with uh, layers of management and just kind of figuring out that whole journey. And then of course, taking the turn into software products, which is kind of a, a trend these days with a lot of productized service businesses, taking that next step. All three of us have launched or have been working on software products in the past year. So we talk about the why behind that and the how. So yeah, just a really good conversation. So without further ado, here it is, our uh, round table, talking productized services with Craig Hewitt, Russ Perry, and myself. Here you go. All right. So here we are. I'm talking to Russ Perry and Craig Hewitt today. We've got a, a threesome on board instead of the usual one-on-one. And, and I believe, uh, Russ, you were on the show uh, back on episode 19. So folks can kind of link back to that. And you've been interviewed everywhere. So you know people kind of know your story by now. But um, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So, so Russ, you're the founder of Design Pickle. And Craig, you are the founder of Podcast Motor. All three of us, you know, among other things, but we're all running and growing active productized service businesses. So I thought it'd be cool for all of us to kind of share notes today and see where we go. Awesome. That sounds good. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, why don't we start it off for those who aren't familiar with you guys, you know, why don't you give a quick, you know, the elevator pitch of what your businesses do. Uh, Craig, you want to start it off? Yeah, sure. So I'm the, the founder of Podcast Motor. We do kind of concierge podcast editing and production, and uh, we've been doing it for going on three years now and uh, have a team of 13 people helping uh, around 30 customers on a monthly basis with their podcasts. And uh, yeah, it's been a great business to build and grow. And Brian and I have talked and learned a lot together, I think, through the years. And so it'd be fun to kind of throw around some thoughts and ideas here with you and Russ. Yeah, very cool. And you know, we're going to get also into the other products that we're all uh, working on. So why don't you talk about the software stuff you've been working on, Craig? Yeah, so kind of along the the lines of podcast editing and production, we we've just launched Castos, uh, our podcast hosting platform, which is kind of going uh, going right up head against Libsyn and SoundCloud and Simplecast and the other kind of handful of other podcast uh, hosting networks. And we have really strong integration into WordPress, which is where we got started with everything with a plugin called Seriously Simple Podcasting. And so, uh, yeah, historically, a lot of our podcast hosting customers have been WordPress-based. And then with launching Castos as our new hosting platform, that's opened it up to not necessarily have to be kind of based out of WordPress and anybody could use it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we'll talk about shifting focus and, and kind of why and what that means. But uh, yeah, that's been a huge learning experience for me. I mean, Podcast Motor as a, as a service is pretty well-baked and understood and systematized and predictable and then getting into software and prioritizing it versus my other business kind of interests and time and money has been uh, a steep learning curve this year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, 
I know I'm in that boat too. I'm sure all three of us. So, so Russ, how about you? Like for like the three people in the audience who don't know what Design Pickle is, tell us about that and what else are you focused on right now? We design lots and lots of things. Yeah. So we're a graphic design company. And again, in this niche of productized services, we're a subscription-based model for getting part-time designer to help out with whatever you need. Basically, the limitations are what you can explain. And I've, I've recently found out, just a side note, there's a secret menu of Design Pickle, kind of like In-N-Out, which is like a hamburger place out here in the West Coast. Like I didn't know this till we had all of our team together last week, but there's these like secret ways of like requesting logos that people know how to request a logo from Design Pickle, even though we technically shouldn't do logos, um, which was a really, uni- it was kind of like a cool subculture. I found out about. <laughs> like I need this picture that kind of represents a brand. Yeah. Like, like, be square. Is, but it's dope, but don't use the word logo because they, they won't do it. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've been doing that. Actually, it, we're coming up on three years, which is uh, a really cool milestone for us. And we are growing. Uh, we have about 140 full-time people that work for us. A uh, big chunk of that being our design team in the Philippines. And then we have almost 15 people now here in the United States. So that's what we do. Um, excited, you know, really amazing to see the growth and, and helping out thousands of clients. But the software which is a whole interesting journey is we decided to take the software that we use internally and try to create a standalone white labeled version of that. So any company that is really providing a repeatable service, like a productized service, which would be the best case scenario, could use our software. And we created it out of a need because we were hacking together lots of other softwares, like a ticketing tool, a subscription management tool, a CRM, file sharing. So it kind of jammed all those together. And it's been an interesting ride. The software's done. However, we're learning the differences of selling services versus selling softwares. It's not necessarily applicable. And actually, really recently, and Brian, you and I talked a little bit about this offline, we're really, I'm thinking about moving it more into the educational space with the software, teaching people how to start their own businesses, and then just empowering them with the software if they would like to use it. Because we're still going to use it regardless at Design Pickle. And if I can help people gain that entrepreneurial freedom through the productized service world, as I know you've definitely been a leader in that conversation, then more power to them. Yeah, very cool. I'm, I'm sure the listeners know my businesses, but just where I kind of like align with the two of you guys, uh, you know, with audience ops, I've always thought that, and Craig, you and I have talked again and again about this, how like it's so similar to Podcast Motor in that we both do like a production line of some sort of content where you're producing podcast stuff. I'm doing blog articles with the team and, and uh, it's very similar in that way. So audience ops today is, what is it? It's about 20 people. Some are full-time, most are part-time or like most of their time contractors kind of deal. Uh, The majority of the team are in different corners of the US. We've got a couple of people out in the Philippines. And then I also work with a few software developers in Eastern Europe. And then on the, so Audience Ops, you know, has been going for about almost three years. And for the past year, I've been building out Ops Calendar, the, the software, which is starting to power a lot of what we do in Audience Ops not fully. One one interesting thing is how like we're building out these features in in Ops Calendar and they're for doing the things in Audience Ops, but we're still like slowly phasing them into that. 
and then again, like the same thing, like, you know, trying to sell software versus selling services, but the software was very much born out of the service. So just dealing with all that kind of stuff. And then just like the changing of, of focus and time and resources and all that uh, has been uh, quite a journey this past year. But, you know, the productized service is really running pretty smoothly today. I was actually talking to somebody about this yesterday. I feel like right now, right, we're here right at the end of 2017. Um, this is probably the most checked out that I've been with audience ops. I still do some things like I'm still involved in the sales process and I'm, I'm there day to day to like kind of coach the team a little bit. But beyond that, it's just really minimal in terms of my time. And the majority of my time is basically being just, you know, sunk into the software stuff, as well as the productized course, which I'm right now also doing a, a big revamp of that. And, that, and that's, that's also a byproduct of everything that I've done. Um, that's kind of a training product that actually lived before even Audience Ops was launched, but then I've been re-updating it with learnings from running the Audience Ops business. So, so yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, why don't we kind of go back real quick? And I'm not going to spend too much on our individual stories. Everyone can kind of hear those in, in other places. But what I'm kind of wondering is, why did you guys actually initially decide to start a service business? Like, I know that all of us have been in like software startup circles for a while. And we've all been in, involved in other service businesses, I, I believe, in, in other forms with various struggles and things like that. So like, why, why start a design pickle or why start a podcast motor? I'll go. I'll start on this one because my answer is really simple. I was super broke and <laughs> I, I'd closed my agency unceremoniously and I was 30, almost 30 and like, fuck, what am I going to do? Like I am unemployable. I have been an entrepreneur for almost a decade. No one's going to hire me. I have a family. I have two kids and a wife and I wasn't living in some cool leveraged part of the world where I could get by on like a hundred bot a day. But I, I like literally was listening to this Y Combinator podcast, the startup school and like thinking, hearing about all of these businesses that have these certain attributes. And so for me, it was like, I got to do something in creativity because that's my only like valid expertise. Like that's the only credibility I have and actually knowledge. I know how to do it. I had a team abroad, although it wasn't like a SaaS model like we have now. And, and I was broke, dude. I needed money now. So I was motivated to get it going and to launch it. And there's like really good entrepreneur.com answers out of that. You know, I saw the opportunity it was this pain I, from my experiences, but really it was like, how to get paid. Yeah. Now what's the, what's the fastest way to, to make some, money? yeah, not, not like, let me develop the software and hope I get paid in six months. Like what could I sell today? Yeah. Very cool. What about you, Craig? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my story is is similar. I you know I don't have a technical background. I'm not a designer, or developer, or anything like that. My background is in sales, so I didn't like have a design agency. I couldn't go write software, and I didn't have just a whole bunch of money sitting around to throw at a software project. But I had started a podcast about a month before I started Podcast Motor, and just quickly saw that like this is a pain in the ass. Like this is really time consuming and difficult and requires like a decent amount of expertise. And yeah, I mean, kind of said like, wow, I bet people would pay for this. And uh, it just seemed like a really easy thing to start. And I, I feel like I've kind of just been riding along with it ever since then. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if you guys agree, but I think the business model kind of tends to build on itself pretty well, as opposed to maybe something like software, maybe not as much, but I mean, 
when you provide a really good solution to a problem that people have that I think in a service business, you have the opportunity to do in a, just a different way than with software that people just tell all their friends about it. And that's, I mean, that's how podcast motor has grown. I wish I could put my foot on the, uh, the word of mouth lever, you know, but I mean, that's really how we've grown because people will say like, wow, you know, these guys have been doing our podcast for a year and a half and they haven't missed an episode and everything's perfect every time. And they tell their friends about it and then they come to us and sign up and So that's great. But yeah, I mean, I just started as like, this is really difficult and kind of a valid problem and something that people would pay a decent amount of money for. I think that's part of it is you have to be able to get a pretty good chunk of money to make a productized service work, I think. Yeah. I mean, I just feel like by being open to the idea of offering a service as the basis of your business, it opens you up to, okay, we can actually tackle a really hard problem and charge a lot of money for it. Whereas if you're limited to only software initially, or, or even only like training, there's kind of a, a limit to the number of available problems that you're actually able to solve. I mean, I, I found that with when starting audience ops, I was like, you know, if I'm going to offer a content writing service, like what's the pricing going to be? Like what would be involved? Um, and I, I didn't even know that, like, so I was coming off of the sale of, of Restaurant Engine, and which was it was a big game changer for me, but it wasn't like a life change. I didn't have runway for years. I had runway for like... I like that game changer versus life changer. It was game changer, yeah. not life changer. <laughs> I mean, it was it was probably the biggest thing that I had done yet, but it was not... Like I couldn't live beyond one year on that, you know? And so my thinking at that point was like... Uh, so I was actually going to just start a software. I was trying to start a software business and I had a few ideas that I was kicking around, starting to do some validation. And I was like, even if this shows promise, no matter what, I still have to hire a developer to, to do this. And that's going to be a year before the thing is even usable or you know viable to, to start building revenue. And then, and then you've got like another year of marketing it. And it's like, uh, that's just not sustainable. I'm going to ha- I'll end up having to go back to consulting anyway, which I really didn't want to do. But then I was like, all right, so then what's the fastest way to launch a service to revenue and to a point where I can just basically pay my own salary and fund new products down the road, not new products like immediately right now. And also I was thinking about like kind of strategically into a market that aligned with my people. You know, I was coming out of Restaurant Engine where I was selling to restaurant owners who I was basically sick and tired of talking to every single day. And then, uh, you know, I wanted to do something in the entrepreneur marketing space, um, which are people that I'm talking to anyway. So I knew that there was potential there and I wouldn't, it wouldn't be service forever, or at least the service would continue on, but I figured at some point I can grow into other products for that same audience. And that's where I'm finally getting to now, three years in. And and I want to like kind of go back on the pricing and the money conversation because what I realized is like services, whether they're productized services or the regular service, they're value-driven pricing. Like how much do I value what you do and what and am I willing to pay it or not? And the markets decide that, like the people decide that a lot often on their experiences, like their past experiences of either good experiences or bad experiences. And if they've had a lot of bad experiences as they might've had in copywriting or design or technical side of podcasting, they're going to value a good experience a lot more. So it allows like us to have a lot more price variability in terms of the upper side of those things because people have had the right amount of pain, unfortunately for them, that you could put a $1,000 price tag on something and they're going to say like, well, that's worth $1,000 to me because man, I've wasted $30,000 going another direction on it. Whereas software purely often 
it's often solving a novel new thing that there's zero comparison of consumption. Like I've never purchased a app that buffers my tweets before. Like I've never had like this crazy pain around that. So buffer can only charge 10 bucks. Cause I'm only like, that's all I have. Yeah, like what, what are you comparing it to? Exactly. So, yeah. so from like a, like, how do you make money conversation? This is what I think is so rad about productized services is you just out of the gates can get profitable. Even if behind the scenes, it's a super, you know, rigged out system. I always joke like design pickle, like you don't even need a paid account to use design pickle the first few months. Like if you just knew the email address, you could just <laughs> hack the system totally. <laughs> Um, but we could charge enough to like actually have money. And that was a huge, that was like a huge eye opener when we tried to launch jar a few months ago, it was like, here we go. Here's this awesome tool. And no one had any experience around the problem we were trying to solve. So no one even knew the value of $40 or $10 or a hundred dollars. Yep. I was asked this question after a talk recently at a conference and, you know, it's kind of like, how, how do you charge so much when your competitors charge 80% less in some cases? And the answer for us was we were so busy and growing so fast. And I was probably so bad at hiring and growing our team that I just raised prices until our growth slowed down. <laughs> and as a result, we started getting better customers. I think it's, it's kind of like the reverse of what you're talking about, Russ, is we raised our prices and started getting better customers, more businesses, less, especially in the podcasting space, less kind of hobbyists who expect the world tomorrow on, you know, perfectly on time and everything. But we raised our prices kind of out of some pain. And as a result, kind of like an unintended consequence, got better customers and were able to run like a more successful business. So I think even if you don't start that way, just raise your prices. You'll probably have the same trajectory of growth in, in terms of number of clients, but there'll be better clients and less headaches. You know, I, it's interesting, like comparing selling software to selling services. One of the challenges with selling services, like the traditional way, like the way that most consultants or most agencies do it with these like long drawn out proposals and like calculating how many billable hours you're going to need to do. And like for the client, that's a super frustrating process. And it's totally skews the whole value proposition of, of like, they're, they're just paying for time. But at the end of the day, it's still a business problem that they're trying to solve. And so what I've definitely found is that clients want to buy services like they buy software or like they buy a product off of Amazon. You know, like it just tell me what the thing that you're going to do for me is and, and show me a price. Like, because yeah. even if you're quoting billable hours, they're still going to add up like, all right, so how many hours is that going to be? And then what's my bottom line going to be? And what's included? Like that's just, you could skip all that and put together a, a value proposition and sell it in a much easier, less friction way. You know, I have a question for you guys, Craig and Brian about this value and the conversation about kind of changing topics slightly, I'm not trying to host your podcast for you, Brian, but I think it rolls with it. Please do it. Like, I want to talk about haters for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Because I have endless amounts of them. And the main argument they have is that somehow productizing a service, a flat rate way of doing things, quote unquote, devalues the industry. Now, this could be my whole conversation for two hours on how I disagree. I'm just curious if you've at all encountered that in your respective industries and kind of how, what your thoughts are. It's interesting you say that. I don't, I like, I guess my, the question for you, is that like the design crowd giving you that? Yeah. Like 
like I went to Rhode Island Art Institute and on like you have slaves working for you and it's stealing, it's ruining America. I, I honestly, I've I've seen that a bit in the, in the design community, like uh, the, kind of like the um, I've seen that the outcry over like ninety nine designs and other sites like that. Like honestly, I think that's BS. Because like most of those designers are not going to take the jobs that you guys are doing in Design Pickle. Well, but I'm like, does it happen in the writing industry? Do designers are just more egotistical than writers or? Um, like, probably. Or, or podcasters? <laughs> Podcast editors? <laughs> I haven't heard that. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't heard too much of that. Maybe there is some of that that I just don't hear. But like. Yeah, I think it, I think that is a design designer driven thing, probably. Yeah. Cause yeah, we don't, we don't hear it, but I think we, we go more towards like a complete solution. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. So it's not just like, yeah. And I think Brian does too. And and Russ, I think you do too, taking care of all of the design stuff. Right. So I think that's where you can legitimately say, like, we solve all of your design problems. We solve all of your podcast needs. We write all of your blog content and publish it in social media and all that kind of stuff. And I think if, if you do that, then the, the value comparison to a freelancer is just not applicable. Yeah. I mean, we're a team, like you get not the writer, but also an editor and the social media and the newsletter and all that. So like, you know, I have had the question like, well, how are you got from other writers? Like, how are you able to charge what you charge when I charge double that? Or if I, or I would charge double that if I'm doing all the things that you're doing. And a lot of that goes into the operations and how we've streamlined things and still, you know, managed to, to build a profit, but it also, maybe I should raise prices, which I still haven't. But, um, but it makes sense, Craig, to what you're saying. Like, it's almost like you guys are a system. You guys are a productized system. Like, here's the system and the price for the system that runs. And at the end of the system, you get the widget of this every time. Like, this is the widget. It's your own widget. And then creatively and artistically, it's the widget you have. Um, mine is really, I mean, a flow of a resource. Like, you can use this resource on demand when you need. And just here's the price for renting it. I, you know, I really don't understand the whole, you know, the notion that like design pickles bad for the design community or design in general. You know, I, I guess I'm asking you, but like, is it, is it that they fear that design pickle is taking away their like jobs that they would have otherwise had? Cause I don't see that. <laughs> I don't either. I call it, I call there's a persona we have for these guys, uh, mainly guys and their wives who like, will get really aggressive and like check team out on a, a Facebook ad. I call them the underemployed design community. So it is, you know, it's the people who literally have time to troll on Facebook ads for design services. And I have attempted so many times and I go in and out of like seasons of engagement. And just the last week I was like, all right, I'm going to tackle this one guy who's literally like leaving one star reviews on our Facebook business profile, which sucks because we do so much advertising there and it brings down a rating. I go to him I'm like, Hey, like you're not a client. Like I respect your opinion, but you know, at least try the service. Like I'll even give these guys free accounts if they want, probably not a good idea, but it just, and I wrote this really like poignant essay, spent a lot of time. I felt good. I hit publish like two minutes later. He's like, I don't even think you live in the United States. You're probably like all of the reviews here. You've hired illegal immigrants to write. So it's like, what a jacket. It's crazy. Like, and, and in my mind, actually I, I met Gary V and he, he riffed on it for a second. It's like, Dude, if you, we use like a global labor arbitrage to have part of our business model work, but at the same time, 
I like in my, my studio right here, I have a full-time videographer. We hire UI UX designers for our website. We're look, even looking at bringing on a full-time US designer for just the day-to-day needs that we can't handle because our design, t- we suffer the same limitations with design pickle as our clients do. Like during the day, our design team is sleeping and at night is when they work. So I don't get it either. And it's, I think it's a fear of change, like really, yeah. like things are changing and the dude who dropped 80K on his art institute degree can't get a job and he's blaming us. But right. I mean, there are still the high-end design client. Like the big brands still need high-end design done. Like or multi- or screens, like interactive or yeah. VR. Like there's like if you're trying to create a lifestyle for your family designing Facebook ads, like I'm sorry, but that's like being the guy who wants to, you know, pay for buy a Tesla working as a cashier at McDonald's. Like you're just not going to, the math won't add up to get to where you want to go. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of saw the same thing in the web design community, especially when I was doing like restaurant engine, but also just getting into like themes, selling like WordPress themes and stuff. Um, it, this is a big reason why I kind of moved myself out of the web design industry. And I only do that kind of work for my own sites now, but like the way that that's going, it's like, it doesn't make sense for a small business to hire a multi-thousand dollar web design firm when you can get a decent theme and get someone to customize it, you know, like, or you can use Squarespace or you can use like whatever, like that's where that industry is going. And if you're in that industry, you know, you can change or you can get swept up in it and that's it. But um, anyway. Hey, sorry. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to play host of the podcast for a second too, Russ. <laughs> Russ, I am fascinated by how big your business is. And to be honest, I haven't listened to a lot of your other podcast episodes that, that you've been guests on, but. Oh, okay. You're the one of the three. <laughs> yeah. But I would love to hear, cause I mean, you know, so podcast motor has been here in 2017 has grown, but not a ton. And I think it's a lot of my focus on other things. But And I think this is kind of like the nexus of how this conversation started with Brian is like, I look at, we're at the point now where I could say, could we 3X our size? And I think in my head, like, well, one, do I want to do that? And then two, like, how would I do that both in like hiring and processes and customer expectation and workflow and everything? And I would just love to hear a little bit of like, I don't know, maybe whatever your analogous analogous kind of like spot where you went from like, I can do this and with like a relatively small team to this is going to be a big deal and I have to kind of rework how we do things. Yeah. I mean, the growth, I mean, to put numbers into perspective, I was just reviewing them. We started this year in like the low $100,000 of recurring revenue. I think it was maybe like $130,000 a month. And we'll close out this month at like recurring revenue of 550,000. So we're, we're just repeating it though. Like that's the big thing is like, I almost envision a visual guy, obviously like, like a family tree. And we figured out how to like serve say 20 to 30 clients really well with the organizational structures and the processes and then a pod of designers and some support team around them. And we've just repeated that and we just continue to repeat it. And the paid acquisition has been really key too, not to mention the offering because it's like a more general... I'd say we're broader than blogging 
in a way, I'd almost argue that, that, that like people can get design even easier than writing, which is still pretty easy. And definitely podcasting is more niche than writing and design. Yeah. There are so many different use cases for design pickle than like one industry. Right. Yeah. But the growth for me came into kind of like the question, Craig, you know, we were talking about you live in, in France and the lifestyle I sort of decided, look, I'm going to try to crank on this for two or three more years and see how big we can make it at probably the expense of, you know, the life component. Although I try to incorporate it still, I do like travel in the summer and, but, um, but I'm, I'm pulling 15 hour days on regular traveling to the Philippines. We were, had the whole team here. Like there's a lot of infrastructure and time and investment that goes into that. And uh, that's, I guess, the trade-off, but, you know, it's damn awesome doing half a million dollars in a month. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that definitely takes me into one of the big questions I wanted to talk to both of you guys about is like, just removing ourselves from the day-to-day and like not getting sucked, you know, sucked into it. I guess going back and then we can talk more about current, but like, what were some of the very first key milestones where you able to like let go of key things that just freed up? hours of time so that you could focus on growth and other things. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just, we've hired people kind of at each step of the process along the way. So audio engineers, show note writers, and then like a production manager. And kind of like Russ is talking about, we've hired just more of those people aside from their production manager. And I think that at this point I handle sales and some kind of like advanced customer support, like exceptions to our general rules. But I do, I mean, in all honesty, we're at the point where our one production manager is kind of capped out. Our audio engineers and our writers are pretty close. So like if we're going to grow and I stay out of the business, we have to hire like a whole nother pod basically of people. Yeah. To add on to that, no different documenting it it, from early on as simple of an idea that was, that was key. And I created a lot of the systems initially just on a Google Doc and here this happens and here's how the files are named and then this happens to go here. And that forced me and I never ran it ever from the beginning. Like from day zero, I had a designer and a project manager. And so there was never this point of delegation that I had to hand off with getting me quote unquote out of the business because I was always sort of removed from the primary deliverable that we were selling. And that, that then allowed me to do marketing activities, videos. I, I learned Facebook ads initially off a Udemy course to do our first Facebook ad campaigns. Um, months not knowing my pixels were messed up and just, just, hey, it's working. We're getting more clients. All right. But that inevitably pushed us you know, for growth. And, and to this day, that's what we're relentlessly pursuing is like, what is the system and the process and the things that we are following? Because there are so many moving pieces that we have. I mean, every uh, we, we just were hitting a new record. We had, we had 1,200 requests in a day last week, like as the holiday season's picking up. So, so we have to have that, but the documentation, like you hear about it and most people say, Hey, well, I'll wait until I have a team. I was documenting when it was just us, like me and the outsourced designer and the project manager. And the tip actually I gave last week was document as you're actually doing it, not like theoretically thinking about the process because (laughs) you'll like, You'll be like, all right, here's the process and you write it out and then you go to do it. And on step two, you change something and then all of the other steps are irrelevant because 
you've you've you know like it's not the actual process i've i've jumped the gun a few times on that and made that mistake too but the you know but actually like you like i actually had to be convinced myself that i did actually want to start an audience ops like a service business because i i remember like the only way I'm going to start this is if I'm never the one doing the writing. Like I have to start with other writers from day one. And, and I did. So early on, I, I think I hired like two or three writers, but I was still the project manager and I was doing sales and project management. And then the first real step, probably like four or five months in, I, I hired a, or I kind of promoted one of the writers to be a project manager. And that was key. Like that was the first time I was really delegating like that client communication. I had done it in my previous business, but this is a different kind of situation. And then the the next kind of phase of like six to 12 months from there, it was that one project manager really growing and taking on all project management work for all clients. And that just got really at like a year of that. She was like, Brian, help. This is not, <laughs> this is not cool anymore. Like, so, uh, so that's one that, that was like the, kind of like the next phase of like growing from one to three project managers. And then even that got Another six six months or so, that got a little bit out of hand. Like, um, I just starting to understand what the limits are of each person's workload to the point now where we're like, we know for a fact like PMs can only manage X number of clients, even if they say they have extra hours. Like, it's just too hectic for them to keep track of that much stuff. So the same thing on the writer side, just understanding like when they're at eighty percent capacity and when we need to start hiring again. And then the more recently, like about six months ago this has been really a game changer was making one of the longtime managers, the internal team manager, the operations manager. I mean, Russ, I'm sure you have like several of these, but like this was the first time I just made the announcement to the whole team. I was like, everyone, whenever you have the questions or things to escalate to me, you're not sure how to handle something. All of that goes to our team manager now and none of it goes to me. And then she decides what to bring to me and she'll give me like a report and that's about it. And I mean, that has just freed up hours of my day because even when I had the systems and the processes in place and the team in place and things are running generally pretty smoothly, it was those, Hey, how do I handle this situation? Or, Hey, this client had this question or, Oh, something went wrong here. What do we do about that? It was four or five of those questions every day that was just eating. I was just stuck in my inbox for two or three hours a day and putting that person in between me and, and all that was just so huge. Craig, I want to come actually give you an experience around, um, and for everyone else who's listening, like the hiring flow that we had, which actually is really vital for recruitment for us, is we actually created a hierarchy of advancement and everyone comes in at the same level. We don't hire in at a management level. We don't hire in at a, at a level other than designer. Like that is the step one for us. And we pull all of our team members for the managerial or operational roles from the design pool. And for an outsource team, and if, if someone's listening and thinking about starting a productized service with an outsourced labor force, this is like so game-changing for our recruitment because there's usually not much advancement for an international designer other than just to be a designer the rest of your life. Like you just that's like your blessing and your curse. Um, if you want to get into management, you have to like, that has to be what you study. That has to be what you start out with. That's, that, that's how you build your experience. You're not going to hire a designer to go into management or a designer to go into marketing or whatever, because it's so hierarchical and linear in other countries, especially in developing countries. And so for us, we could say, look, you come in as a designer, but if you want to be promoted and these are promotions, 
into a customer success role, we'll take you and we'll put you there or a management role or wherever. And um, that gets us really motivated folks to come work for us because they see that career path. And it's not just, I'm just an outsourced designer for the rest of my life, just trying to get a little bit more per hour doing design. No, that's great. I mean, I think we kind of fell into that with the gal who is our project manager at this point was a show note writer for us. And she kind of came to me and said, I don't want to just do this for the rest of my life. What's this look like? And so I, again, kind of just got lucky, I think, with that. But I haven't used that as a, a hiring angle. But yeah, that's a great point because I think that you know, audio engineers or writers would be in the same boat. Hey, this is a upward trajectory opportunity. Yeah. And it's, it's human nature. And I think because we all are small businesses and entrepreneurs, we don't, we don't foresee that like being a luxury that we can offer so early on. But even if you're a team of four and it's like, okay, this is the one person. And then you could become this person number two. And then this person number two goes to three. And like, there's that there, that, that path that allows people, at least in what I've seen internally to like have a, a connection to the company that is that career mindset. You know, I, I speak to a lot of people who are like trying to build out a productized service. And a, a lot of the hurdle is, is the fear of hiring someone. And like maybe they've, they've hired some help with some of the technical or the design of the deliverables, but hiring that higher level manager position I didn't realize this until I was starting to really work on audience apps that like, you know, that person doesn't have to be a full-time salary position in the United States. Although RPMs are in the US, most of them are still part-time work from home, pretty flexible hours. Like that role does not have to be full-time. Like, and there are super, super talented people, super motivated looking for, and, and they have like high caliber skill sets. They can talk to clients really confidently. They can manage really complex projects. They could talk to the team and manage the team, but they're work from home moms or they're like stay at home moms or they're freelancers. They've got other gigs that are like come and go, but they want something a little bit more stable in their like portfolio. They want to come in and spend like 10 to 15 hours a week. They want to be part of a team when they're used to being like solo working in their bedroom or whatever. It's like, you know, there are really talented people who they're, they're sick of the corporate lifestyle. Like, I think that there's something to be said for that type of person to, to bring in, you know. I'm going to have to slightly disagree with you, Brian, but in a very specific way. Go for it. A guy was talking to me about his productized service business. I forget what he was doing. I think it was like WordPress updates or development. He's like, Russ, I'm having such a hard time finding people. Like every time I find somebody, it works out and then they just totally bail. And he's using international teams. And I'm like, all right, well, like, like, how are you hiring? I'm like, what, what's their salary? He's like, oh, no, they're, I'm just paying them hourly like, for like, the work they do. And I was like, dude, if you don't commit to them, they're not going to commit to you. And I don't think, I agree with you in the sense, I don't think everyone needs to be a W-2 full-time you know, earner here in the States, but there needs to be that show of commitment. Like, hey, I'm not going to micromanage you with hourly rates. I'm going to pay you this weekly. Here's what I expect. It's like this pseudo salary. I just made that term up, but like a pseudo salary where it's like, here you go. Here's my commitment. Here's what we do. But you don't have to like, I'm not watching you making sure you clock those hours to get that money. And that, that was what we've done from the beginning. It's like designers are actually taken back. They're like, well, like we do break it out on a 40 hour week just from a promotion standpoint when we give them a raise. But they're like, well, do I need to record my screen, which I learned people have to do sometimes to prove they're working? No, 
you just do the work and you get paid like a regular job. No, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've always uh, veered away from doing the hourly thing. And, and, and yeah, we just have like agreed, like this role has this rate for these deliverables. As long as you deliver them on the day that they're due, you make your own hours and, and it's... But, you know, I've, I've actually... And this is different when you get to different levels of growth. And we have some people who are like full-time and some are still in this like part-time role. But I found that like, since we do seek out people in the US, I tend to seek out full-time freelancers and they want to be... And some of our part-time people, like I've been begging them to go full-time and they're like, no, nah, I, I kind of want to stay freelance and still just spend you know half my week working with audience ops. And they've been on the team for like two or three years. Uh, actually, I was just sending out Christmas gifts to everyone. And I, and I was like, more than half the team now is over like two years in. And most of them are still freelancers. And it gives them that stability. I, I think that, that that doesn't work for every business and every situation. But like a lot of people kind of discount that opportunity to find really, really talented people who don't want to go slave away at a job 40 hours a week. You know, So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if this is a, a good segue into talking about software and, and our other type projects, but we're looking, we're going to start doing this with our developers uh, going to the new year is just have a monthly rate that we pay our developers. Uh, and it just kind of assumes, okay, you, you were working about this many hours a week or a month, and that's cool, but I'm just going to pay you a set amount now. And you tell me when you're kind of out of hours or, but you budget your own hours to where you work for us about this much. And it's not full-time uh, just cause you know, Castos is not, it's not doing 500 grand a month yet. So we can't afford yes. <laughs> full-time, yes. full-time yes. people. No, no, it's definitely yet. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I, I think it, I do want to show that commitment to them to say, okay, um, you know, we're, we're not just dating anymore. We're, we're going steady and we're going to, I'm going to pay you you know, ahead of time, not, you're not going to record your time anymore. It's just going to say, this is it. We're going to pay 20 hours a week worth and they'll pay you up front and just go. I do something like that with my developers. I pay them basically, what is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a monthly flat fee because software is so unpredictable, both for me and for them. Like they don't know how long I, I'm willing to commit and I don't know how long it's going to take them to deliver X features. And um, so when they start out, like after they pass a trial period, then I'm like, all right, I, I am going to commit to this at least two months, but probably throughout the rest of the year. And then we kind of agree that like under this salary, we're, we're expecting, you know, um, three to four full days a week, which sometimes stretches into five. And then I split that am among a, a couple of right now, if three developers work on, on the software. But actually, that, that is a good segue because I was I wanted to ask both of you guys. Uh, all right, so 500k MRR growing service business podcast motors well established several years, you know, doing really well. So like, why even go into other products at all? Why not just keep growing the service? I I've been asked that question a thousand times from masterminds and other places. So like, I'm curious about your you guys' thoughts on that. Especially when you look at like six figures that could have been in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Craig, I'll defer to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we got, uh, this is like the anniversary of uh, acquiring the WordPress plugin that we built our hosting platform on top of uh, is this week. And so I have been kind of thinking about it and we just kind of relaunched our platform of, yeah, all the time and energy that I've just put into this. Uh, what could I have done with that time and energy and, and money? that opportunity cost. And it's a little, I don't know, like I, I don't have a definitive answer for it. I don't know that I'm better off now than I was 
than I would have been if I would have just stuck with podcast motor. Uh, I do think one of the big drivers for me is the kind of hard asset of SaaS and recurring revenue and a bigger distribution of customers. So, I mean, you know, like Podcast Motor has like 30 customers. If five customers cancel in a month, that is a really bad month for us. Um, already with Castos, I mean, we say we have 500 customers. If 50 of them cancel, it's not a huge deal for us. So, I think one, like a SaaS product, if you're going to end up selling it in the future, is worth a ton more money for the same amount of revenue on the secondary market. And I think all things being equal, a software product is more predictable because I mean, now our hosting provider, like it's not complicated, but like you need us to host your podcast files. And if you want to go move them, it's a pain in the neck, right? So I think that like once somebody gets set up on Castos as a hosting platform, they're going to stick around for a long time. Um, as a service business, it's just more subjective, like, oh, they didn't get us our stuff on time, or it didn't sound good, or you're too expensive, and I have a buddy who can do it for $20 an episode. I feel like it, a service business is is a little unstable. At the same time, from a business perspective, it's so much easier than software. <laughs> I mean, and I feel like we've gotten pretty easy with growing a SaaS app to a decent level here in just a few months. Um I don't know. That's, it's not a definitive answer, but that's kind of the back and forth I have in my head right now. Yeah. Like my two cents on this is I've actually been on a pretty big emotional roller coaster on this whole SaaS project. Like I, when I first launched it, I like thought this was going to just take over design pickle, like design pickle was the stepping stone to my SaaS empire. And <laughs> that didn't happen. And, um, and we spent a lot of time trying to build this like standalone thing and a business and even team members to support it. And I actually um, had a really big realization, although it's a lofty analogy around the Amazon Web Services sort of story, how Amazon and it basically had the infrastructure and had things that they thought would be helpful for other people. And it wasn't necessarily they were trying to create like this standalone experience or product, which is like, hey, we got these servers, we have this delivery infrastructure, we have all these things that other folks can use. Why don't we just let them use that? And that's been my new mindset with the product is we're actually going to have it be at its core, the engine of Design Pickle, but there will always be a version that can support other folks around their entrepreneurial adventure. And it may not dwarf Design Pickle, but at the same time, it'll be a very narrow focus. And that's also why we're adding on education because the three of us could get how to use our software really easily because our mindsets understand productized services, but that's not common. And Brian, I know you believe this too, Craig, I'm assuming so. Like, you're talking to the guy at the nine to five job, we're going to be like, bro, go start a productized service. Like it's the easiest way to get going. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I just simply want to be an easy platform that people can use for that. But I had to like retire my, my vision, part of my vision board of the, of the like jar, we call it jar, like the jar, hundred million dollar business in two years that gets acquired by GoDaddy or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and definitely my 2017 goals for Ops Calendar, our software product are like <laughs> Report to totally Report out the window at this point. Like, uh, but you know, the, um, I do think that the transition from productized service to software, we're seeing it again and again. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Like there's a, a lot of talk about just kind of stair-stepping and start with something small and then do something a little bit bigger and then do SaaS. 
Um, I think by kind of planting your flag with a productized service, that's an engine for cash flow, number one, but also just learning a process around a, a killer problem to solve. And then out of that, kind of develop a problem to solve with software, which, you know, like Ops Calendar, I never would have even thought about that at all before working on audience apps for three years, you know. Um, but, you know, I, Craig, I can definitely relate to a lot of what you said around like the reasoning for personally shifting your focus to seek out software products. I mean, the swings in MRR growth or cancellations is tough. I mean, sometimes, you know, if we get like two or three cancellations in a week, like that's a big swing in MRR overall or, or, or signups or, you know, same thing. And, and then, you know, combine that with the cost of people and the growth, like it is profitable and it is a model that can continue to grow and has been growing. But, and I know, I mean, design pickle is kind of the business model is structured uh, differently. I'm, I'm sure it's the profit margins are just a totally different structure, but the way that mine and Craig's businesses are structured, it's, I could see how it's like, I guess the term would be like, it's growable, but it's not as scalable as like a SaaS would be. So there's that. And while I, I enjoy working with my team, I'm, I don't really see myself interested in growing like a hundred person plus team. I mean, but at the same time, I can see myself waking up a year or two from now and be like, oh shit, we have a hundred people. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give, I'll give just kind of like a little bit of view from like the other side of the SaaS hill it is like at this point, we have a really well-baked product and we have new customers coming in from like organic growth channels and we don't ever touch most of our new customers. So talking about growth, like I think we're just getting to the point where like our tools and our onboarding, and our documentation, and our marketing, and our channels are just getting to the point where, like, we can get to that point where we can grow incrementally without incremental costs and effort on the SaaS side of things. And a productized service, even if you're not involved in the process at all, there's always going to be an additional input of cost to incremental revenue. And I think with SaaS, we're just starting to see that now, seven months in to where we're making money without doing any more work, which is the dream kind of a SaaS, I think. Yeah, Dude, that's like crying a tear of, of sadness and jealousy. It's like, <laughs> we get a bunch more signups. It's like, uh, like we're literally licensing. You guys heard Creative Live, the training company at Washington. We're like one of their first enterprise clients licensing their content because we just are like running out of people to hire, like at our quality. So we're like, Growth means more people like right now. And what you just shared, Craig, is like, that will be my holy grail at some point, like that you could get to that. I can get to that point. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just these last few months of working on the software, it's me and two or three developers and we're across the world. But like, I found that to be like my most enjoyable work, like daily work that I've done in, in a long time. Um, as much of a roller coaster this year has been kind of financially, we've had a lot of downs and then, and then back up again near, near the second half of the year. I think I, it was as stressful as that was at times. It was also the most enjoyable, like from a creative standpoint, like working on designing and building software and getting some like very first users in the door. It's still super young and like, yeah, we have some paying customers, but it's, I still don't believe that it's like fully quote unquote validated. Um, there's still so much, especially from a marketing standpoint of like how we're really going to grow the user base on that. But just the process of working with the developers and building product and seeing features go live, I think that's been pretty exciting. I'm, I guess I'm curious about you guys. Like, so we're running these very busy operating service businesses. How about like your roles as you start to venture into software? Like, how has that balance been in terms of like your daily focus and like your work with the team or without the team? And 
how you guys kind of square in that? Uh, I'll just start because actually this has been really hard. And um, what ends up happening is I pull out of the day-to-day operations of Design Pickle to work on the software projects. And then I get super stressed out that I don't know what's going on at Design Pickle. And not like that I need to be doing the work, but like I see projects that aren't complete or I see things in process and I have no context. And just like two hours before our meeting, I had to talk. I had to like apologize to one of my guys because I totally freaked out the last couple of days. And he basically just said like, Russ, like we got it covered. Like you like, don't worry about it. So I'm learning how to let go. Like that's a big thing for me. Um, like things work and it's not like I'm letting go of the operations. It's even more than that. It's like even letting go of the knowledge that I don't even know. I, I may not know what's happening at all times because things are just at such a large scale. And that's my new, like, that's hard for me right now. And I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting better at it. Lots of meditation. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's still like, I, I have, so, you know, you're, you're a couple uh, milestones ahead of where I'm at and probably Craig where like I have managers in place and I have a higher level team manager in place, but still any sort of like strategic decisions, creative decisions, or like anything related to the product of audience ops, the service, like that's still on me. And I'm not, as I said, I'm kind of checked out, like I'm not actively changing anything in audience ops right now, but if any sort of process is breaking down like that, basically all things stop. Now, Brian has to come in and troubleshoot this process. Save the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, what I, my goal really going into 2018 is to get the software and, and the productized course grow those to a point where they basically replace my, like right now I still rely on audience ops to kind of pay my salary and throw off a bit of profit that I can pump into these other products. Um, get it to a point where these other products completely replace that so that I can fully reinvest in audience ops and really grow that out and have people kind of running the marketing and the sales and stuff and really remove myself. And not like I don't intend to wind it down or sell it or anything. I would like to see it continue to grow, but I don't want to be the one to work on the growth. I want it to just be one piece of the portfolio while I kind of work on the software and the training. But, you know, we're so far away from that being a reality. It's tough. But like, I mean, Russ, you know, you mentioned like letting go. It was interesting uh, about six months ago when that longtime manager reached out. It was her idea to say, all right, Brian, I think it's time we removed you from all these escalated questions. I didn't think that I was ready for that. And it was like an an eye-opening moment. I was (laughs) like, I was taken aback that, that she recommended it. And I was like, that's great. Let's do it. And then, you know, because she was like, the team often gets confused. It's like, do I bring this to Brian or do I bring this to, to Kat or whoever? And it's like, it just made all the difference. And uh, yeah, sometimes like I definitely need the the kick in the ass sometimes to like get the hell out of my own business. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, why don't we try to like, you know, wrap this up. Uh, any like parting questions or thoughts from you guys? No, I mean, I think it's for me, it's Russ. It's great to get a chance to chat live. I think it's the first time we've chatted and yeah, I think it's really amazing the scale and the scalability of a business you've, you've built. I think for everyone listening who is involved in a productized service or, or looking into it, it's a wonderful kind of model and role model for people to follow. Uh, no offense to Brian or to myself, I guess, but <laughs> I think, well, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Thanks guys for chatting. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, thanks for coordinating. I'll, uh, and Craig, actually, I'm like launching a podcast soon. And then my 
producer doesn't want to manage it because she's already managing something. So maybe I could be a client of you too. <laughs> Sounds great. Yep. <laughs> All right. We, or she, she probably would manage it. She's sitting in the room with me right now hearing me say this, but she shouldn't manage it because she has a lot of other projects going on. So there you go. Um, but no, uh, it's been great, that's, Brian. That's like the first sale made on air. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, uh, thanks for coordinating this. And, you know, to everyone out there, like, um, you know, I just, if you have not checked out Brian's stuff, definitely check it out. I, I can't echo more the, I wouldn't say the ease of productized services, but really the ability to make a real difference fast. Like that's the way I look at it. And yeah, I'm always open to have more of these conversations or get more tactical if we want to do an episode on marketing or sales or ops or whatever and bring whatever can to the table. I enjoy it. And I appreciate watching your wife like make sandwiches in the background oh, like, I know. on the video too. <laughs> I have, I've got like a, a glass door behind me and like everybody on, on these calls always see like my dog or my three-year-old run by or my wife. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so no, I didn't, uh, I didn't real, that, like, real life. I didn't mean that way. By the way, I realized that was kind of a weird comment. I just, it's like, it's fun to see real life like, like happening. Yeah. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah, Russ, Craig, thanks for coming on. We're going to link up your services, your software products, and everything in the show notes here. So, uh, yeah, thanks for doing it, guys. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Hey, before you go, have you checked out my YouTube channel yet? I've been posting short videos where I answer questions that come in from readers of my newsletter. You got a question that you want me to answer? It could be about business, entrepreneurship, productizing, life, whatever. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you recently and I'll add it to the queue. What's up? You're not on my newsletter yet? Well, get on it. Head over to my site, castjam.com. That's where you'll find it. Okay, until next time. See you.